here with my old mate Everald. Uh, this is Young James, and this is another episode of Old Everald and Young James. Thank you for listening, everyone. How are you doing, Ed? Well, I'm doing well, James, and I hope you're um, you're doing well. Well, you look as if you're doing well, but there's, there's all sorts of things happening in the world we ought to discuss and get ourselves uh, fired up about. I hope you're feeling all fired up this morning, are you? Oh, yeah. Well, um, appreciated your birthday wishes yesterday, Everald. Feeling uh, 24 and all the worldly wisdom and that that comes with that, I'm ready to uh, deliver. Well, you haven't got a heavy head after your birthday celebrations, have you? No, no. Even if I did, that would be uh, no obstacle to getting a few politicians for six. <laughs> well, anyway, um, happy birthday for yesterday, James. Now, look, I think we should start off talking about the Gama Festival, which is on up in Diamond Land. Sometime before I uh, cack it, I'd like to go to a Gama Festival just to see what happens. It's obviously a big event and it's the biggest gathering of Indigenous people in Australia every year and Elbow's going there. The media this morning, and you can't trust the media, you know, say that Albo's going to affirm that uh, there's no delays in the referendum, there's going to be no change to the strategy, uh, you know, it's sort of victory or death. And and so I think we we should have a, a little discussion about that. If I could start off and say I have been advocating quite some time that legislation be passed before the referendum, setting out how, how uh, voice will work now. Albo, and I'm not blaming Albo, he's got a difficult job with this, but saying, well, we can't do that. We still get the point that the main reason why voice looks like losing is that people simply don't trust politicians. They simply don't trust them full stop. And that is the main reason why people will, will vote no. Now, I think the way around this is for Albo to give a pledge to say, that when legislation is introduced to the parliament after the referendum, it wins, and let's hope it wins. I'm working to make sure it wins. When the legislation is introduced to say this is how it helps, that a parliamentary committee will be set up to review the legislation and then have public hearings all over the country, capital cities, major regional committees, so the public can come along and have a say and an input before Parliament votes on it, so it's not something that gets slammed through Parliament and that the consultation will be held. And I think that would swing a few votes our way. Now, what, what's your, my legal advisor, uh, what's your view of all that? I, I think that's a nice middle ground. I mean, because as we've discussed before, well, as, as I've said before, at least, I think there should be no obligation on Albo to kowtow to these what I would say unreasonable demands from people who know what the details of the voice are, but instead are pretending they don't to try to um, sow division. And when I say that, I'm talking about people like Peter Dutton um, and Susan Lake. Now, what I do think, though, is you're right, that would go a long way to assuaging a lot of people's concerns um, in terms of feeling like that the design process of the voice may be flawed. Obviously, I think that's a Personally, I think you and I think that's a needless concern. But it is true that there are people out there who have that concern and it would be nice to address the concern for those people. I saw a tweet this week from um, Briggs, the, the rapper, um, and it, it was pretty simple, but it was pretty thought-provoking to my mind. It was on the topic of the voice and it was appealing to the people who um, adopt the Lydia Thorpe no argument which is voice 
is not necessary. Voice is a thing of corporate Australia. It is treaty we need first, and we can do treaty first and then voice at some later point. And what Briggs basically said was, like, not everyone who's voting no is a racist, but all the racists are voting no. And when you go to vote no on your ballot slip, there's not going to be an option that says yes, no, because I'm a racist, no, because I'm progressive. It's all the same no vote and it all goes into the same bucket. And I think that was just a really um, insightful is the wrong word, but a really punchy comment that hopefully will also convince some of those quote unquote progressive no voters if they see it and hear it. Um, because at, at the end of the day, I think that's a group where you can also probably peel off some votes back into the yes camp if you can convince these people, hey, like, yeah, I understand you think voice is incremental and not enough, but this is, you know, this is the path to treaty. And at the end of the day, you can go around all you want saying you're a progressive yes voter, progressive no voter who wants treaty to come first. But if we don't get voice, um, we're probably not going to get treaty at all. So, and that's well, well, true. I feel what you're saying, James. I, it's too late to change now, but Albo took the advice of the leaders of Uluru thing to have the voice thing first. Now, as you know, I've read the voice document a few times, and it says a number of things that voice wanted, that, that the Uluru wanted voice was only one. It also mentions a treaty in there. Yes. It also mentions truth-telling, and it also mentions acknowledgement of their heritage. Now, I was with a group, a small group of oldies the other day, and, and I were discussing this, and I said to them, if the referendum simply said, will you acknowledge 65,000 years of heritage, this was their land, it was invaded, you know, we acknowledge that all happened and we want to make peace, you know, whatever works. 90% of the people in the room said, yes, we would vote for that, no question. And I said, if there was going to be a treaty like the one New Zealand had at Waitangi in 1840, almost 200 years ago, uh, where a deal was struck and it's struck ever since, the, the Maoris were made citizens at that very day. Uh, if, if, if we had a, a treaty, 60% yes, uh, and, and some of the others undecided, when I say, well, uh, how are you going to vote with voice? Only 30% going to vote, you know, with voice. And so it would have been good if it had taken steadily and we had a, an addendum put to the Constitution, first a preamble, that's true, then get a treaty. And in the treaty, the treaty could say the government shall establish a voice. That's part of the thing that's part of the treaty. And then it becomes part of a treaty rather than part of the Constitution, and I think all three would have gone through over a period of time without all the division there is. Now, you're my, as I mentioned, James, you're my political advisor. Wouldn't that have been a nice way to go about it? Well, I suppose what I would say to that is, and I'm a huge advocate of treaty, I think we, you know, voice treaty truth of the steps Uluru wanted, and I hope we see those steps come to fruition. Um, but I think that is 60% of people who you talk to who would say they're cool with a treaty, but that's before the big um, hate and racism and division anti-treaty campaign um, st starts up. If we were in an alternate universe where they tried to do treaty um, before voice, then all like the same Pauline Hansons, the same Peter Duttons, the same David Littlebrows, 
would be out on the street telling you treaty is the worst thing ever. They'd be telling you treaty, um, you know, the Aboriginals are going to come and take your land off you and seize your front yard, set up camp in there and kick you out and all these horribly racist and divisive things. And it would turn all the misinformation like it has for the voice would turn a lot of people off treaty as well. So much like how before the voice no campaigns kicked off, polling for the voice support was at like 60-70%. I think it would be a similar deal with treaty where a lot of people would, once the the more cynical and divisive and evil elements of the anti-treaty campaign kick in, um, I think it would turn a lot of people off treaty. And we saw this week the opposition sort of start doing that, some conservative media start doing that by hinting um, towards the evils of treaty that Albo will try to bring in because of his attendance at Gama. And, of course, we, we both support treaty, um, but I think it remains to be um, seen just how low the anti-treaty people will go in resisting one. So, well, mate, I have heard Peter Dutton actually say that he thinks that a treaty would be better than the voice. I've actually heard him say that, and yeah. I reckon we can hold him to that. Uh, and uh, uh, a treaty, the wording of the treaty has to, unlike voice where there's a lot of unknowns, the wording of the treaty is going to be out there in public. And, and for instance, Queensland is moving to a treaty now. I got invited last year. I think it was the end of last year, my Anastasia came to a dinner with three, had lunch with 300 people uh, uh, where she announced uh, they're working towards a treaty and announced a group that was going to move towards a treaty. It's going to take years. Now, I sat between two blokes who I know are conservative voters, two business leaders. I sat between them at the thing. And they were, they told Anastasia in my presence that they would back the treaty. Now, these might be I might have struck, you know, two very decent conservatives in not of the male that are racing around now. But in the room that day, uh, uh, there were pretty good support. Let's move towards a treaty in Queensland. We've got a fair sort of an Indigenous population up in the Gulf up there, much more than the other states. And that's moving along, and now I think it'll take some years, but there's going to be consultations about the wording all over the place for a long time, and the budget's been allocated to the... That seemed to me that that's going to work. Why couldn't it work at a federal level as well? Or is it best for the whole six states to each have a treaty and then the feds buy into it? Um, I suppose the first thing I'd say was, to my mind, the only thing motivating Peter Duck to say we need, like, I'd prefer a treaty over voice is because he's using it not to big note treaty but to rubbish voice. And if it were the other yeah. way around and we were going for treaty first, he'd be out there saying, oh, no, treaty's too radical, we've got to do voice instead. Um, that's the cynic in me, but I think um, I don't think you necessarily disagree. Now, I think, though, it, it's good to see the states taking the lead on treaties. Um, I would obviously love just a federal treaty that covers the whole thing. But a big worry of mine would be if the voice referendum fails, um, and we we hope it doesn't, we are going to do everything we can to get it to pass. But if it does, it puts... Albo then in a bind for seeking treaty and truth because he said, I'll follow the steps of the Uluru Statement, I will implement the Uluru Statement, and if the public says no to voice, I would, you know, I would love him to say, well, okay, we're doing treaty and truth anyway, but I don't think he would, um, which would mean 
it would be on the states to step up and fill the gap. And I think Victoria is working towards a treaty as well, um, from what I understand. I would love to see all the other states buy in too, because if, you know, the the states and the federal government do things differently, the states and the federal government own different parts of land and crown lands and administer different parts of state, um, such that I think a, a treaty, a state-based and federal treaties would not be a bad idea um, to the extent where it would have both levels of government recognising that the land on which they do their business um, was stolen and not ceded um, and always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Well, see, we face with a situation, I don't want to get too gloomy, but the founders of Uluru, the guys who wrote the Uluru Statement, hoped that voice and treaty and truth-telling and everything would, would unite the nation together for the first time since Captain Cook went past. Now, that's not going to happen. No matter what happens in this referendum, we're going to have a bitterly divided nation. If Indigenous people lose, I've said to to people who are dead set no voters, I said, if you vote this now, do you honestly think that Noel Pearson and all these guys are going to go home and say, oh, look, they knocked us back, I'll just quietly sit here and have a few beers and, you know, just come? They're not. There will be a bitterness there that they weren't treated well and, and in many ways haven't been. Now, if the other way goes and voice wins, there's no way that, that Dutton and all these guys are going to shut up and say, oh, well, there's a referendum, it's done. They will fight the things of the bitter end through Parliament in every way that they can and divide the nation. So we're going to wind up with a bitterly divided nation. And all we're doing, of course, if we knock it back, is just to kick the can down the road for my grandkids to have to worry about it, you know, sometime. Uh, and so this whole thing has been a tragedy, James. Yeah, and I suppose that the last thing I'll say on this is one of the arguments that, Frankly, and pardon my French, one of the arguments that shits me the most about the voice is when you hear from Anglo-Australians or non-Indigenous Australians saying voice will do nothing, therefore I'm going to vote no. Because voice was something that was asked for by Indigenous Australians at the Uluru Summit. It's something which, according to polling, has support of over 80% of the Indigenous community. So for, for non-Indigenous people to then come in over the top and say, no, no, I, the smart white man, understand that this won't actually do anything for you. You think you want it, but I know it won't do anything and you are wrong. That's exactly the same thing that's been leading to so much inequality and so much mistreatment of Indigenous Australians ever since Captain Cookland, this idea that Whitey knows better for them than they do. Um, well, it is a, it's, a sad, uh, it's a sad situation, but let's... What we've got to do is try and make the best of it now in the best yes. way we can. We better move on before we run off. I think we can now get from the serious business of, of voice down to the silly business of, of Donald Trump and, and Scott Morrison. Uh, now, Donald Trump uh, is arraigned now for the third time, and I understand the state of Georgia is going to get him for trying to change the Electoral College vote there, and that'll come in the next couple of weeks. So four serious charges against him. Now, Trump yelled out in court yesterday that America was never meant to be like this, that they get to the point where an ex-president's got that. America was never meant to be like Now, that's exactly true. 
when George Washington and Thomas Jefferson and, and Benjamin Franklin and Alexander Hamilton all wrote the Constitution and created they never ever believed that a lunatic like Trump would ever get into the White House. It did never ever occur to the Founding Fathers that they'd have this guy there. So Trump is right. The Founding Fathers didn't want this to happen. That's true. The Founding Fathers are turning in their graves saying, who's this stupid bastard? Anyway, the big thing, James, is that it looks as if he can run for an election no matter what happens in these trials and if he, be, he can become the president in jail and, and uh, there's some legal opinion that says he can then pardon himself uh, uh, that seems to me to be a bloody awful situation. Now, you're my legal advisor, James. How can a bloke become president of the United States from jail? From jail? Um, uh, look, I, I think, though, it's theoretically possible. I think if he's in jail, he would be an electoral liability. So I, I don't think it can happen. Uh, touch wood, obviously, you know. I mean, the Republican voters are loonies. We're not dealing but, with rational people. Look, I'm, he, he can win the Republican nomination from prison, and he probably would. Um, but I've seen polling that that suggests that again among obviously among Democrat voters, but among independent voters too, Trump being in prison is not exactly an appealing proposition to independence. I know some people have hesitations about Joe Biden, um, his age. People don't like that. I think he's doing perfectly well for his age, to be honest. Um, he's he's lively, he's sprightly, and he's fit. Um, he's, but, he's twelve years younger than me, mate. He's only a lad. <laughs> this is true um but look i i think um point being people have concerns about biden but for a lot of independent voters um not being a federal criminal is a pretty important thing on their checklist even if they would consider voting for like a quote unquote george bush style republican who gives them a tax cut and does a bit of racism but does it quietly um they're they're not willing to pull the lever for a thrice convicted federal criminal. Um, and that's independent voters. And they're the ones who in America swing elections in states like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Nevada and Georgia and whatnot. So even though it's possible for Trump to run um, from prison, I, I don't think he could win the presidency from prison. Well, I, I hope not. Let's move on from him to uh, Scott Morrison. Now, in in Scott Morrison got up in Parliament to declare that the whole uh, uh, Royal Commission about robo-debt was a witch hunt and a political stunt and that he's been terrible things done to him. And he made as pathetic a speech as I've heard a bloke make in Parliament in all the 65 years I've been going there. Now, Bill Shorten then got up and made the speech of his life. Now, if Bill had made this speech before the... It made other speeches, rather, in that quality before the 2019 election, he might have won... It's a passionate speech where he took Morrison apart. Now, the essence of it all is this. If Morrison, well, first of all, I happen to know that there was a little prayer group that Morrison and Dutton and all used to meet in an office next to Dutton where they'd pray about legislation they're putting before the House. Everybody knew in the Parliament where the prayer group was. They'd go in there. Now, they believed that the Lord had called them to put every tax cheat, every welfare cheat they can find in jail. And so acting on what the Lord said, they put this robo-debt thing together in order to get these wicked people who were pinching money from welfare. And, 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 and now, 
if that and having it all gone wrong now, if Morrison on Friday had said, look, we believe there were welfare cheats. We decided that this is morally wrong. We decided we had to put in a system that got these welfare. We did. We put in robot. It was good intent. And, well, well, it hadn't, didn't work the way we thought it would work and it became a stuff-up. And, look, I'm, I'm really sorry it became a stuff-up, but it was my rightful intent at the start to get rid of welfare cheats. If he got up and said that, there would have been something, there was not one word in this about how he had hurt people, how he'd caused some people to suicide, how people had nervous breakdown. Not one word of humility, only that the whole thing was hitting him. I actually sat there listening to his speech, wanting to vomit, made it really made me ill. Now, what's your view? It, it was raptured, like him, Morrison painting himself as the true victim of this robo-debt quote-unquote witch hunt, when, like you say, he caused people, the robo-debt system caused, drove people to suicide, it drove people to countless mental health issues and emotional and mental abuse. Um, it, it, it chased our most vulnerable people to the ends of the earth, to debts they did not even owe. Uh, and then I think Shorten was right when he got up afterwards and he called Morrison a bottomless well of self-pity, um, which, you know, hang that up on your wall. Uh, that was <laughs> if 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 anyone hasn't yeah. seen Shorten's speech, I recommend they go check it out because he 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 brings the hammer down on someone who deserved to have the hammer brought down on them long ago. Also, I understand the law regarding royal commissions. You cannot, in Parliament, denigrate a royal commissioner appointed under the royal commission, who's usually a judge because it's got to then be treated as a court. You cannot, as an MP, say denigrating things about a royal commission or say that they set out to get me. You may quick it up and question the evidence and say, look, I don't think this evidence went before that and I'm worried. But as I understand it, you cannot, in Parliament, try to deny or, or, or not accept or whatever a Royal Commission that was legally set up under the Royal Commission's Act or whatever it is, you can't do that. Is that right? Uh, that I can't speak to. I haven't um, haven't peeped that section of the relevant legislation, I'm afraid. Um, but I will go check it out. That, that sounds interesting. And I mean, to be fair, Morrison's not the first person to categorically reject the allegations of a Royal Commission, but um, he's certainly one of the most shameless and wretched in doing so. Well, the point is that everybody's running around now saying, well, they have been for a long time. When's he going to leave Parliament? And and I think the short answer to that is that while he's in Parliament, he has got certain legal privileges that he doesn't have when he gets out of Parliament. Yep. And I think he's staying there because that puts a little web of protection around him, doesn't it? I'd say so. And I mean, to, to tie it all up into a little bow, this is something Trump started and Morrison has always done. It's it's in vogue right now to when allegations of any sort are made against you, be they allegations of corruption, allegations of sexual assault, allegations of misuse of power in public office, allegations of treason in Trump's case. Um, the first thing to do is turn around and not deny the not just deny the allegations, but also say it's a big witch hunt and everyone's out to get you and you're the lone crusader standing against the wicked tides. Of, of the mob who are coming after you 
and so on and so yeah. forth. And it's, it's well, not it was a sad week. Well, our time running out, and we better get on to good and bad guys. Could I say that the Matildas uh, have united this nation in a way that I haven't seen for a while? When the, they didn't do all that well in the first couple of games, and everybody was getting down. But when they defeated Spain 4 0 the other night, yeah. I have seen a nation so behind a team. And I know some blokes in my life who are absolute misogynists, whatever you, who were cheering the Matildas to the echo, to the echo, the echo. They're cheering the Matildas widely, yelling out, you know, Australia, Australia. They didn't even regard the Matildas as a sexual object of women. They were Aussies and they were out there and they were winning for Australia. And at the end of that game, for the next 24 hours at least, there was an aura of goodwill floating around Australia that I haven't seen for a long time. And so I want to say good on the Matildas. Yeah, I, I saw someone on Twitter before the Canada game say something along the lines of one of the coolest things at this Women World Cup, Women's World Cup, it's obviously been awesome to see people taking their daughters to the Women's World Cup because it means that these girls, young girls, can see soccer, women's soccer's best stars and realise, hey, you know, we can play, be just as talented as the boys are. But someone pointed out that, like, it's also awesome to see, like, fathers just taking their sons to the Women's World Cup because it means these families are going to women's sports and loving it, not as some afterthought or curtain raiser or second-rate, second-level sport to the men's sports, but we're getting buy-in across the entire community from men, from women, from all ages, um, into the concept of women's sports as its own standalone thing. I mean, Cricket Australia has led the way in this regard. We have, we don't have the ashes and the women's ashes anymore. We have the men's ashes and the women's ashes. And both of them, um, the men's and the women's cricket team, pack out stadiums. Matilda's merchandise is outpacing Socceroos merchandise in the stores right now. And frankly, they deserve it because the Matildas are ranked in the top 10 in the world. The Socceroos, with the greatest respect for the Socceroos. Well, it's good. Now, the next next crusade we've got to run, and we'll discuss this next Saturday, is the women's soccer team and women's soccer players have now got to get paid the same rate of pay as men's soccer players. And you and I might take up a little crusade about that. Well, who's your good guy of the week, James? Um, The the, the last thing I'll just quickly say on the Matildas is, um, you know, everyone who denies that there is a wage gap in pro sports would absolutely flip their lid if the Matildas got paid three times as much as the men's did, uh, even though, again, right now it is the Matildas who are selling out stadiums. It is the Matildas who are pumping Soccer Australia's coffers filled with money for the merchandise. And I think you're right. Women's sports across the country, and specifically the Matildas too, need to be paid um, as much as the men are. Uh, now, no, my, my good guy of the week, uh, is my mum. As we said earlier, it was my birthday yesterday. And um, one of the things mum got me was just this little book, a book by Marcia Langton on Indigenous law and customs and how they are relevant to modern Australia today and what uh, we can learn from them. And as we go in the lead up to the voice referendum, as we continue fighting the yes fight, I am absolutely super keen to get reading this. I think it's going to be an incredibly insightful book. Uh, Absolutely looking forward to what lessons I can learn uh, within and you know I think it's uh, it's it's the sort of thing where I think stuff like that should be mandatory reading in in schools and whatnot because you know it, it, as as we said earlier this this is their country 
a sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, this always was and always will be Aboriginal land. And I think we almost owe it as obligation um, to build and learn from Indigenous ways, laws and customs. So I'm really looking forward to reading it. Thanks, Mum. Yeah, well, I've got a couple of books that people have given to me, one called Sand Talk and I forget the other one, which talks about how Indigenous people cared for the land and the environment all those years and what we can learn, you know, from that. And I'm into that, so we're in two different ways. Now, now the bad guys of the week, and, and I know you won't agree with me, so I want to you, know, you, you calm down. The Australian cricket team, we, we ended up sharing uh, the series, uh, you know, a, a draw uh, after England won the last test and uh, and uh, and we retained the Ashes because it was a draw. But we really can't claim a victory because it's only rain that saved Australia the previous test and forever there'll be the issue of was it sporting for Bairstow to be run out that day, which was a crucial element in Australia winning one of the games. So the Australian guys didn't cover themselves in glory. And I hold the view they were doing well in the first couple of tests and still until the Bearstow incident. And then somehow or other the controversy about that made them drop their bundle, that they weren't quite the good guys everybody thought. And they came apart right from the moment of the Bearstow incident. So I don't think they're anywhere near ranked. The Matildas, the Aussie men's cricket team at the moment. Now you tell me where I'm wrong and all that, James. Well, I think the other big turning point in the series was England picking Chris Wokes and Mark Wood, which they did in the third test. Chris Wokes went on to be man of the series with like 17 wickets in three matches or something and performed really well with the bat. And Mark Wood bowled 150-plus kilometre genuine pace, which at times scared some of the Aussie batsmen. Um, but I think it was an awesome Ashes series, full stop. It was awesome cricket. I think both sides should be very proud of the cricket paper. There was a lot of errors, but both sides ended up serving up some really entertaining cricket, um, cricket that the fans will love. And, you know, if, if you're a cricket fan and you watch that series, you'll walk away at least knowing you got to see some pretty damn good matches. Um, but I think now it's almost good in a way that the Ashes are over because the nation can turn its focus and attention to the Tillies and get behind the girls we take on Denmark. Fair enough. Well, well who, are you, who are your bad guys of the week? Um, my bad guy of the week. Now, um, I'm doing this one for you, Ev, so you owe me one. I know you wanted to talk about the um, allegations that a childcare worker uh, in Queensland yeah. was, is alleged, and again, no no prejudgment of guilt, is alleged to have committed, I think, 1,632, um, maybe 1,632. Against 91, 91 kids involved. Yeah, 91 kids and over 1,600 acts of alleged um, child abuse against them. And Again, we're not going to prejudge this particular individual because we know that they are entitled to the presumption of innocence and we don't have the full facts at play yet. But I think a, a conversation ought to be started about these sorts of... Um, Why did it take so long? Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's, it, it's find 1,600 abuses, 91 kids. It just seems to me that, that there's had to have been some covers up by management somewhere. Somebody should have thought something was wrong a long time before we got to this point. Yeah, it, it, exactly. This isn't to uh, exculpate the alleged abuser if or any alleged abuser from um, liability or blame, but if something like this happens, I think it's not just the individual abusers at an individual level that we need to be taking aim at as a society, but really there's something at a more institutional level wrong 
be it negligent management, like you say, or cover-ups or something that lets it get to this point. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, that wasn't a good time. Well, James, we've had a good discussion, and I think our time's are about to, to run out. Spotify will chop us off in a minute, but we've had another good talk, and I think there's a few interesting issues going to come up in the coming week on a on, on a few fronts. So next Saturday we, we'll have another uh, a good chat. But thanks for the chat today, and and, and have a good week. And uh, and you keep reading that book by Marcia Langton. You can I'll even allow you. Five minutes next Saturday to tell us something out of it. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. And yeah, wonderful chat. Hope you all enjoyed it as much as we do. Yeah. See you yeah, next week. You. Bye. Bye. Bye.